Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we invited Aaron Sabarium onto the show. Aaron is a star reporter over at the Washington Free Beacon and has really moved the needle in covering the campus culture wars. Most recently, his reporting contributed to the resignation of Claudine Gay from Harvard. But rather than discussing the intricacies of the gay controversy, we wanted to have Aaron on to talk first principles. What does it mean for our society if culture war becomes a war of personal destruction? Will it lead to a better world in universities and more broadly? Or have we just descended into another level of vengeful retribution? Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Hey, well, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I actually haven't seen either of you guys. Well, I haven't seen Aaron in a longer time, but Happy New Year. Shadi, I saw you a little bit before I left, but uh, yeah, good to see yeah, you, Yeah, welcome fellas. back. I'm, ex- I'm excited about this New Year of Wisdom of Crowds, and we have a really great way of starting it with none other than Aaron Sibarium, the enterprising whippersnapper of a journalist. <laughs> And who really has done amazing work in kind of breaking big stories, and we'll get into one of them in this episode, which is the resignation of Harvard University's president, Claudine Gay. Yeah, Shadi, I was just going to say whippersnapper. I feel like Aaron's lapped us at this point in journalism. It's not like whippersnapper young journalist. Like, True. We're, we're, we're a bunch of... Bunch of graying pundits this this is this is the the rise look how youthful he looks well i guess like for those of you listening you won't be able to see his face but he 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 does look quite youthful and um i think it's also worth noting that we've had him on twice before i believe so this is a trifecta of sorts and um yeah we're really happy to have you aaron maybe just to get started um i think for people who follow the ins and outs of elite universities and and the debates around them, they'll think this is a big deal that Harvard's president resigned. But for the layperson, for people who maybe don't care all that much about Harvard, why does this matter? Why should they care? What does this story mean? Maybe let's let's start with that kind of open-ended question, because I think there's a lot of different angles with which to look at this story. And I'm curious, Aaron, how you're going to answer. And I actually don't know. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, look, obviously, a lot of people are putting this in the context of Claudine Gay's uh, disastrous testimony on anti-Semitism before Congress, in which she gave very technical, legalistic answers to questions about whether calls for Jewish genocide violate uh, Harvard's code of conduct. Um, you know, that, that really put a spotlight on her, uh, shortly thereafter, a number of allegations of plagiarism from her academic work surfaced. Those allegations, a couple of them were first broken by Christopher Rufo, but the lion's share of them were broken by me. Uh, there was kind of a steady drip drip for weeks of new allegations coming out. Uh, and then 
uh, on January 1st, the new first day of the new year, uh, at about 7 p.m., maybe 7.30 p.m., we published a story detailing six new allegations, including some pretty severe ones. Uh, uh, less than 24 hours later, she resigned. Um, and, of course, one way to frame all of that is, ah, the hearing on anti-Semitism uh, galvanized a bunch of evil conservatives to go looking for dirt in her academic record. And this is all really an attempt to get her fired for mishandling the anti-Semitism controversy. I can't speak for the motivations of other actors, but I can tell you that I would obviously have covered this story whether or not there had been any testimony on anti-Semitism, whether or not there had been an October 7th, whether or not there had been any controversy of this sort whatsoever, because I think it obviously matters if the president of Harvard University, uh, one of our most storied and elite and influential institutions uh, in the world, is a serial plagiarist. Um, you know, and, and I, there's a lot of different angles to this, but the one that I think is very important is that she violated policies and standards to which Harvard holds its own students on pain of pretty severe punishment. Um, yeah. So yeah. if you do what Claudine Gay did once, maybe you get a stern talking to, maybe if you do it twice or it's more severe, you fail a class. I mean, you do it 50 times, and that, and that's about how many allegations there are. It's close to 50. Uh, you, you're going to get suspended at a minimum. Um, and possibly more. So, you know, I'm sure the anti-Semitism stuff uh, didn't help, but I don't think it's obvious that without it, she would have obviously survived. I think the plagiarism stuff, even on its own, would have created a big problem because, A, it just is embarrassing. B, I think a lot of faculty who initially supported her stopped supporting her as more allegations came out. Um See, the Harvard Corporation really mishandled the allegations and tried to suppress them with a legal threat to the New York Post. Um, and that, I think, really lost them a lot of faculty support because the faculty were like, wait, what the hell were you guys doing? You know, why weren't you just forthcoming about this? Um, and then D, I mean, finally, I think that they were facing increasing pressure from their own students and would have faced more because... How are you going to look a student in the eye and say, sorry, we're failing you or we're kicking you off campus uh, when your president gets a free pass for what you did? Yeah. It just would have been unsustainable. And all of that, I think, uh, could potentially in an alternative history have been enough to sink her. Obviously, we'll never know. But I, I think that some people are trying to say this is just a continuation of the anti-Semitism story. In some ways, sure, but I actually think that it's distinct. And for reasons I can get into in a minute, I would actually argue that although neither the anti-Semitism or the plagiarism stuff are maybe her truly greatest offenses, you know, in the course of her career, I actually think in many respects the plagiarism is a worse offense because it strikes at the, the heart of the universe. Sorry, a worse right? offense than what? I think it's a worse offense in in certain ways than her congressional testimony um because well a i think that although she's a total hypocrite for invoking free speech in the way she did 
her answer wasn't technically wrong on the merits. Um, you know, okay, it but, is true. Mm. It's a, the answer, the be, answer being, the be, answer being, just to, to again, uh, for people who are not following as closely, she said that context matters in questions of anti-Semitism. And, and I think it's factually true if you look at the letter of Harvard's policies and the legal standards that they claim to incorporate that context matters and that calls for Jewish genocide, the genocide of Jews might not ipso facto violate the school's policies. I think that was a factually correct description of the rules at Harvard. So then why um, would it be considered an offense in the first place where well, you said it's a worse- Because it was a PR, because it was a PR catastrophe to well, say so, it, so I mean, yeah. you know- But, but, but can, I, can I just, Demir, quickly, yeah, go ahead. so, yeah, so, yeah, so sure. the reason I, I want to emphasize why the plagiarism is in a certain sense worse is that the purpose of the university is not to make any particular group feel safe and welcome. Those are nice, and I don't think Harvard's done maybe a great job on, on some of that stuff, but, but that's not the point. The point is the production and dissemination of knowledge, and anti-plagiarism norms are important for that end, right? We have these scholarly norms to betray the fundamental purpose of the university, which is the production and dissemination of knowledge. Gay violated a norm that was central to the whole reason that we have these institutions um, when she plagiarized. And that's, I, I, and here I may depart from some other people on my quote unquote side, that's not the true of the anti-Semitism stuff. I mean, I don't think it's true that the university's purpose is to make Jewish students feel safe and welcome. I don't think they should make them feel unwelcome. I don't think they should apply double standards. I don't think they should allow targeted harassment and certainly not physical threats of any student, Jewish, you know, Muslim or otherwise. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it is not a university's job to be a safe space. It is their job to uphold scholarly norms and, and rigorous academics. And that's really what the plagiarism stuff made a mockery of. Um, and in that sense, I do actually think it was worse. And I'm uh, of course, I mean, of, kind of, of glad that they that they axed her over that as opposed to axing her over Shad, a congressional Shadi, before you just get in, just one other point of clarification. I mean, I actually had to look this up, but maybe just for, for audience, though. Mm -hmm. uh, what does a president of a university do? Uh, what's the role of the president of a university? Well, uh, they do a lot of fundraising. They oversee a lot of things. They, they ultimately have the final say on a lot of policy decisions, although obviously most of the, the nitty gritty of that is worked out by other committees and just approved by the president. Um, a, a big part of it, frankly, is being the public face of the university. So obviously, and sort of a steward of its brand. So in that sense, of course, the congressional testimony was a problem because you're supposed to say, as one of my friends put it, her job is fundamentally to say the right thing at the right time which is, of course, the opposite of what she did in her testimony. And maybe you could argue she said the right thing, but it was certainly the wrong time and the wrong tone. Um, and that is, I think, a demerit against her judgment as a, as a president, as a kind of leader of the institution. But, you know, I, I think the other part of stewarding the brand right is exemplifying its virtues and its purpose. And Harvard is supposed to be an academic institution. Uh, and so if you're the president of Harvard flagrantly violates, uh, longstanding norms of academia, well, that's a bit of a yeah, problem. But, but, but Aaron, if it's just, a, if it's just about, or primarily about plagiarism, then it's not that interesting of a story. 
Um, plagiarism happens. She's been punished for it. We move on. I mean, that's not why this matters. And that's not why um, so many commentators and observers are paying attention to this. It's a proxy for a deeper set of issues well, around cancel culture yes. and Israel-Palestine and um, also, you know, questions around racial justice. I mean, but before Claudine Gay became well known for her bad testimony on anti-Semitism, she was a proponent of DEI policies, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She made um, advancing, quote unquote, racial justice a key part of her her efforts before she became president, because she's been in administrative positions at Harvard for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So she's someone who's very tied to the post-George Floyd moment. And that's also why conservatives wanted a scalp. Um, oh, sorry. Um, okay. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, we're not allowed to use that now. It's, it's racist, according to the Associated Press. Oh, is that really true? Okay, yeah. Well, well we yeah, won't cut apparently. it out. We won't cut it out. We won't cut it out. Anyway, you know, <laughs> okay. I mean, anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So it, became, so it became racist this morning when they used it in an article to attack Chris Rupo. They said that he was, that scalp is a term that was used by white colonizers to refer to how they beheaded Native Americans, not the other way around. I, I this, this was apparently discovered in the past 24 hours. Oh, okay. It's amazing how fast academic scholarship works. Yeah, well, uh, you know, that digression aside, <laughs> that conservatives wanted to get her. They've been, sure. they've, they've had her in, in their crosshairs. Also, probably something we should probably cross somehow. So, whatever. Uh -oh. <laughs> this is violent speech, Shadi, very violent. <laughs> but so here, but I, Aaron, I don't think that you can just sort of dismiss. No, sure. I mean, you might be principled and sincere in your intentions and you love upholding academic standards and integrity because you want Harvard to be a bastion of academic excellence and so forth. Great for Aaron. <laughs> but unfortunately, a lot of other, con and not to say that you're conservative, but a lot of folks who are on the right side of the spectrum, who are conservative activists, they, they as far as I can tell, saw this as an opportunity and they used plagiarism as a pretext to get what they wanted regardless of plagiarism. Yeah. They I mean, I'm not, look, obviously there are people who basically put that in writing. So it'd be silly to deny that that's the motivation of some people. Um, but I, I think you said a few different things there and it's worth actually disaggregating yep. the, the different motives. So one motive is the anti-Semitism stuff. And I will say that again, on that one, my biggest issue with the way that has been handled is not that they refuse to shut down speech. It's that they they claim to stand for academic freedom and free speech the moment the really nasty speech was about Jews. But for the past five years, under Claudine Gay, when she was the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, they were willing to systematically suppress uh, conservative views and many views that we would consider, I think, very mainstream. Yeah, but, and but far Aaron, less. sorry, but two wrongs don't make a right. So yes, they're being hypocritical in that yeah, regard. But, but so I, is the argument here that because they suppress speech in favor of no, I'm saying, but Shadi, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying that that was a. I think that is a legitimate thing to hold against Claudine Gay. 
like 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 if you want to like if you're saying this is that the plagiarism thing was ultimately pretextual and it's about other grievances okay fine what i'm saying is that there's a few different other grievances you might mean and i think some of those grievances are more valid than others i don't think the idea that they that that harvard should have suppressed anti-semitic speech is a good no I, i disagree with that and in fact i mean in my ideal world a lot of speech that probably is not currently allowed on campus in practice would be allowed because I'm a pretty much a free speech absolutist on this stuff. Um, so I disagree with that. But the, I think there's a better argument against her, which is like she embodied a set of really pernicious double standards that were that were part of a broader ideology that was bad and which was itself antithetical to the purpose of the university. I mean, not just the plagiarism, just the tip of the iceberg, but right when you have these kind of bureaucratic witch hunts that she presided over against professors who, uh, you know, violated the, 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 the structures of political correctness in some way, many of which themselves were very pretextual, right? She, she, there was some, the allegations against Roland Fryer, this black economist who was accused of sexual harassment, The allegations, I think a lot of people agree, were very weak, but they were used as a what seemed to be a pretext to to sanction him after he had just published a paper uh, calling into question whether police disproportionately use lethal force against black men. Fryer is black, by the way. Um, Claudine Gay was instrumental in uh, that kind of witch hunt. There was also another black scholar at Harvard Law School, Ronald Sullivan. She helped strip him of an administrative post after he served on Harvey Weinstein's defense team. This is a guy who's defended people of all sorts, including like, you know, actual murderers. Uh, And students complained, oh, you're defending Harvey Weinstein. How could you? That's evil. And then he gets ousted. Um, And there were other controversies, too. So so her her tenure and some of the things she did as an administrator really were pretty bad. They were totally antithetical to, if not the letter, then certainly the spirit of Harvard's free speech principles. Um, And I think it's totally legitimate for conservatives to just think, well, that stuff was bad and we don't think someone like that should be president. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not denying that, you know, some of those same people use the plagiarism things as a pretext. I'm just saying that not wanting someone like that to be president, you know, that's not the same thing as being triggered because she allowed from the river to the sea to be chanted. Yeah. I think that's before, a much more Before we move on, Demir, and you jump in, yeah. just can you clarify for listeners what Claudine Gay's quote-unquote broader ideology is? How would you describe that? I think it's um, one in which uh, uh, the subjective feelings of certain uh victim groups or alleged victim groups uh, take precedence over longstanding liberal norms of free speech and due process. Um, I mean, we, we refer to this kind of ideology as woke. And I mean, I don't know if we want to go down the rabbit hole of defining woke because I think that gets boring. But look, it, in terms of the, the, the scholarly, in terms of the context of the university, I think she was willing to jettison a lot of longstanding norms of free speech and due process and fairness when it suited her and her kind of ideological allies. Um, right. So, yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. So, so, so look, um, you know, rather than, than, uh, 
I think like could I say go ahead go ahead say something one about, more thing yeah but I think I think there's so, so, so Shadi I mean you, you were asking well so why might someone want her out well I think there's actually a third reason um that's not just about the anti-semitism or the kind of broader woke DEI ideology it's also fundamentally that she was not a scholar she was an administrator she was a career administrator who specialized in administration and took on administrative roles from a very early point in her career and was kind of groomed for administrative leadership. And that whole career trajectory did not exist 50 years ago in the university. That has been made possible by this explosion of corporatization and bureaucracy and administrators that have now effectively supplanted governance in these schools. It used to be that the faculty were kind of a largely self-governing unit. Now universities are ruled by administrators first and foremost. And I think Claudine Gay is an epitome of that that transformation. Hmm. And a lot of smarter conservatives, um, in fact, actually, Vivek Ramaswamy made this point on Twitter. The um, smartest conservative. Not, not, <laughs> no, I'm not saying he's the smartest, but he, he did, and it was a good point. I mean, he said, like, look, she, she's fundamentally a career administrator, and, and that is exactly right. That is a big, people keep saying that her thin publication record reflects affirmative action, and that may be true in part, but that's not the main reason. It's that she stopped trying to be a scholar who produced scholarship and instead focused on administration. And I think it is, there is a smart kind of more intellectual conservative critique of the universities that locates a lot of the ideological and other pathologies of higher education in this administrative bloat. And Claudine Gay was a, both a symptom and a driver of that administrative bloat. So I think on those kind of structural grounds, it's perfectly reasonable for conservatives to say, look, you know, we don't like that these sorts of kind of career administrators now exist and have taken over the university. And we'd rather someone who's more of a serious scholar. I mean, that actually is part of a kind of tradition of more intellectual conservative and then to some extent kind of more socialist left critique of the university. Well, so look, Hmm. I I, I I sort of want to engage you, you know, just as a sort of partner in thinking through this rather than, you know, someone who is very much part of this story. Um, and just sort of maybe that helps unencumber you a little bit and help us sort of think through maybe a little bit more of the first principle stuff. I, I think the, 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 the stuff about uh, administrators, that's why I asked what the role of the president is, you know? Um, uh-huh. And I mean... You've outlined, I think, a perfectly fine set of preferences that conservatives might have about how large bureaucracies like these should be run, but ultimately they're just a set of preferences. And, you know, I mean, also running a big institution is hard. There's nothing ipso facto, I think, offensive about having a professional managerial class running what are ultimately no longer tiny academic institutions, but in fact are $50 billion endowed mega corporations with a global brand and all the rest of that. So, I mean, that's a preference. I mean, it's fine, but like, I, I don't I don't think mm-hmm. that that gets us all that interestingly. Again, like yeah, conservatives have preferences, they have theories of the case. That's all fine. Um, you know, whether they're correct or not, also debatable, but whatever. I guess what what I'm more interested in is this um is this question of DEI. And in like trying to prep for talking to you, I, I was sort of uh 
trying to figure out what like the most um I don't know, good faith or maybe most like first principle articulation of conservatives case against DEI and as you said taking down someone like Claudine Gay on pretextual terms would be. And tell me if this rings true to you. That is to say that like DEI um, as sort of like an institutional manifestation of wokeism, which again, let's not get into that rabbit hole, is something along the lines of a, a kind of revolutionary ideology, which says basically the following. Um, I believe I have access to the truth. Um, and uh, when I seize power, I will use that power to push that version of the truth through. Um, and you know, that at minimum is an illiberal ideology. Um, and one would say that one needs to uh, basically rid the universities of this liberal ideology because the greatness of our institutions of higher learning are that they are liberal in the sense that they are um, always in pursuit of truth, but always aware of the contingency of it that like truth needs to get put out there uh, sort of as a thesis to be rebutted and debated. The debate plays a huge role in it. So the ideology of DEI is inimical to the university and therefore needs to be replaced. But then conservatives have said, and you know, Chris Rufo has I think been one of the most outspoken people on this, I don't know if you agree with it, um, is this idea that, well, the institutions have been captured by this ideology. Um, they do it, as you were saying as well. They uh, behave in an illiberal way in doing it. And the only way to fight it uh, is on the same terms that they're actually existing at this point. So it's kind of like a counter-revolutionary approach uh, to fighting a revolutionary ideology. I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, the only way to get rid of Robespierre in the end is actually to kill him. Um, because that was the only way to break the fever of mm -hmm. of of the French Revolution, and then to and, impose your own reign of terror, but just in the other direction. Yeah, well, but yeah, exactly. And I, I guess my question to you, Aaron, is like not necessarily as someone involved in this story reporting it, but just like to reflect on this with us sure. as we do it right now. Is like, do you think? Do you think this moment has been um, basically a triumph that will be lasting, um, or? a passing sort of scalp, again, that's now been hoisted, but that will actually, you know, deepen, deepen the chaos and the, the, the kind of uh, revolutionary, counter-revolutionary struggle, if you will. Yeah. I, well, I'll be honest. I, 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 I go back and forth on, on aspects of this question a little bit. Um, you know, the... I do worry, and I, my sense, to be fair, is that some people like Bill Ackman are starting to wake up and, and moving beyond the kind of harm safety language. But early in this uh, controversy, post-October 7th, a lot of the blowback the universities got was expressed in the familiar DEI idiom, right? Jews are a marginalized group. They feel unsafe, blah, 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 blah. And... One argument I heard from some of my conservative friends was, okay, yeah, this is bad, and this isn't the right language, and yeah, they're demanding censorship, and maybe that's not good, but ultimately, what this is doing is it's making universities afraid to piss off the right, and that's what's important, because that fear will cause them to evolve 
kind of re-evolve good free speech norms. And I think that argument may have something going for it, but it rests on a lot of assumptions that may be wrong or only partially correct. Uh, I think the biggest issue with it is that the way in which the pressure is understood matters a lot to how to what the response looks like. And so if the only kind of moral vocabulary anyone has is this harm safety binary, you know, my worry early on in this was that we're ultimately just going to get more censorship. And rather than kind of getting to a new and better equilibrium where the left does what the ACLU did in, you know, during the McCarthy era and kind of evolves these robust free speech norms to protect itself and then comes to believe in them sincerely, what we could just get is kind of escalating norm deterioration where everyone just uses these these terms of harm and safety and weaponizes them and it's just everything gets worse um, and more and all the crap that we've been complaining about on the left, it just starts coming from the right, but that doesn't cause the left to change course. Everyone just doubles down on the harm safety censorship logic. And I think that still could happen and I don't dismiss it at all. Um, but I think that the plagiarism thing and kind of what's been happening to Claudine Gay and to maybe a lesser extent Liz McGill, I mean, another, there's another way to look at it, though, which is that this showed that these massive taxpayer-funded institutions, which are really public in all but name, can in fact uh, be influenced by public pressure and are not just immune to politics. And I think there was a kind of awakening here on the right that we don't have to just sit by as these things that, you know, take hundreds and millions of taxpayer dollars a year, proceed to use that money to just make a mockery of their own institutional purpose and, you know, spread a really ridiculous cancerous ideology. Republicans, I think, are now realizing, you know what? Like, you want to play this game? Okay, well, maybe we should defund you. Uh, maybe we should do an endowment tax. Maybe we should do all of this. And I do think that that kind of awakening of political consciousness is a good thing. Because A, on just on the merits, you know, these institutions are taxpayer funded. And I do think that that comes with certain obligations to the public. And the theoretical case for them being taxpayer funded as well as tax exempt rests on certain assumptions about their character that plainly no longer hold true in any meaningful sense. I mean, that's my own view. Um, so I don't think it's illegitimate at all for politicians to apply some degree of outside pressure and scrutiny. And I got to tell you, I, I don't agree with everything Chris Rufo has said or done. I don't, I certainly don't agree with the people saying we're going to defund you unless you censor a bad chant. That's insane and really sets a bad precedent. But I do kind of agree or at least have some sympathy for the idea that if these schools want to just become hotbeds of insanity, well, all right, Republicans should start dragging more of their presidents in front of Congress and humiliating them, and then maybe they'll stop being so crazy. I mean, and, and move beyond the testimony for a minute. Um, not to toot my own horn, but I have, I think, succeeded in, if not restoring sanity, then at least limiting the insanity at some of these places by just embarrassing them. I mean, these places 
are easy to embarrass. Um, a single journalist can do it and make positive change. Like I've gotten DEI administrators basically fired from Yale and Stanford Law School by humiliating them. <laughs> so, if, so, if, so if elected Republicans start throwing their muscle behind it, suddenly I think the incentive structure really changes and universities do have an incentive to rein some of this in. I mean, but so so let me just ask, you know, yeah. um, the 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 goal, though, um, the ideal is that actually universities just shut up about the big questions of the day. That's the ideal. No, that's not the idea. The idea. Well, the ideal, the, idea is the ideal, you, not the idea. The ideal. No, no, no. The ideal is not that. Well, the ideal is that universities institutionally speaking as institutions shut up. Gotcha. They absolutely right. should do that. Right. Yes. But it's not that it's not that individual professors can't say. No, 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 no. I, I mean, meant as right, institutions. Like, and I want to and I want to emphasize that that idea that they shut up. This is actually there's a this is the UChicago Calvin report, which yep. is seen as a sort of foundational free speech document. The idea is that by shutting up about these issues and maintaining institutional neutrality, Universities allow for a flourishing exactly. of ideas. Yeah. So, yes. so yeah, exactly, which is why I see the pressure if it if it is directed towards that end as actually being very positive. But it's not a directed special- towards that end, Aaron. That's the problem. You, if we're talking about yeah. Republican officials and conservative agitators and so forth, they don't actually have real principled, coherent commitments to free speech, because almost no one does in American politics. Once you have power, you lord that power over your opponents to silence them. Everyone does it. And it's been really sad for me to see people um, on the right, on the pro-Israel side of the debate, who were who were opposed to cancel culture for years. And we were on the same side of that debate. They're just more tolerant of it when it's used against pro-Palestine voices. And it's so blatantly hypocritical that it takes my breath away. And it's really made me kind of sad. And people will say, well, Shadi, of course they didn't believe in free speech. Well, I don't know. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I think the danger with everything, with what you're saying, Aaron, is that the people who are on your quote-unquote side... They don't have any commitment to free speech, and they're going to punish pro-Palestine voices as much as they can. They're going to use the power they have when they have it to censor people they disagree with, but just from the opposite side. And I just I just don't see how any of this can lead to a good outcome unless Republicans and conservatives are actually serious about free speech. I don't see any evidence that they are. Yeah, well, look, I, uh, I share some of these concerns, although let me try, since I think this is part of why you invited me on the podcast, to kind of steel man there, the, the case for, for this for a minute, which would be to say, look, you're right, Shadi, they're not principled, and nor is the left. For goodness sake, the ACLU were communists, and then they just decided free speech was good because it let them be commies without getting persecuted by the government. Of course, it's not principled. But raw exertions of power can lead to the development of better principles. And, you know, if you just condemn any effort to do anything on the grounds that a not insignificant portion of people, you know, on the bandwagon are stupid and unprincipled, well, welcome to politics. You're just not going to be able to do anything legitimately. 
And then the, the other question too, and I think, I think this is important to sort of understand the conservative perspective here, the smart conservative perspective is to say, let's just grant your premise that, and I think it's largely true that a lot of Republicans in Congress certainly don't really care about free speech and, and a lot of people who've been going after Harvard don't really. Um, let's just grant the premise. Um, okay, but who is going, but, but what is the bigger threat to free speech on college campuses? I don't think that Republicans getting mad about this one particular kind of sui generis issue is as big a threat. I'm not saying it's not a threat. I'm not saying that I like what the Republicans did. I'm not. But do I think that that is as big a threat institutionally as, for example, DEI hiring statements that in effect penalize candidates for saying things like the most qualified person should get the job? This has actually been reported. There are FOIA documents from public universities. So these are the ones that are really bound by the 14th Amendment, even more than Harvard, uh, that are supposed to be extra accountable to the public, where they have said, you know, yeah, we're going to we're going to penalize any candidate for a, bi a biology professorship if they say the most qualified person should get the job. I mean, that is a real level of kind of ideological totalitarianism that is built into the structure of these places that conservatives have been complaining about for years, but it hasn't gotten away, gone away, and there's been no pushback to it internally until there was this external activist campaign. So, you know, my, my kind of response to you, Shadi, is, look, I, we do need to guard against the overreaches of Republicans, but... Uh, if you do, but if you agree with me that there is a kind of there is a lot of censorship at these universities, fire fire ranks Harvard dead last. It gets literally a zero on its free speech rating. Well, the people who did that were not Republicans; they were the universities themselves acting as self governing agents. And fire gave Harvard a zero. Hard to get much worse than that, right? That's the argument. It's that it's that like this might require that there are going to be overreaches. But the overreaches are less le are probably not going to be as bad. This is the argument in the long run as just letting these institutions continue to govern themselves as they have been for the past 20 years. I mean, mm. that's the argument. It's that we're choosing between two bad options. Look, like I believe me, if there were a way to put pressure on these schools in a systematic way without, you know, this crazy oh my god how dare you not expel the kids for saying globalizing intifada like great i mean i have i have argued i have with my friends said listen you know i really think some of these elise stefana questions are kind of silly and i would you know i wouldn't frame it quite like this i wish that they focused more on free speech and the double standards like like i agree with you but at the same time uh you know I'm seeing universities are responding to this and and there's suddenly a kind of conservative foothold here. And there was just there just wasn't that. OK, before. but and I think to... you have to take that seriously. If you're like if you want to solve these this this problem, you have to look at what has actually worked and what hasn't. Oh. I'm not saying there's not a better option. I'm just saying, like, I don't think that the sort of, oh, just leave leave it to them. They'll sort it out. 
is particularly compelling given the evidence of the past 20 years. So I guess you, I guess the argument you're making, which I actually find somewhat persuasive, and you know, I'm listening and I'm like, hmm, he makes a good point here, is that politics like life is messy and there will yeah. be casualties along the way. And sometimes you have to pay a cost to get what you want. And it's, um, there will be collateral damage, so uh -huh. to speak. Can, can I, can I jump in though on, on that? Basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. So, 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 but maybe let's also take a step back and, and look at what that collateral damage is and the costs. That's the other thing I've been thinking about in prepping to talk to you about this. Um, I don't oh, know. Demir did a lot of prepping. <laughs> I did some thinking. I did some thinking because I don't follow this stuff. So I, this I didn't is want the to be new Demir. Of, I didn't want to be completely out of my depth on this. Look, um, I, I uh, uh, a colleague mentioned this, and I, I thought it was interesting. It was an offhand remark, and it's probably not fully correct. But like, one could maybe trace the beginning a lot of a lot of this stuff. And this is not to to like say this side started it or not, but at least like a really remarkable moment in like American public life where this stuff got really mainstreamed was maybe the um, the railroading of Robert Bork for the Supreme Court, uh -huh. which set like a kind of public precedent for you get someone who's very qualified and then you, you know, basically find something to smear and destroy uh -huh. and then bring down that person. And that, that thing transformed the, tra the Supreme Court into what it is today. Uh, it didn't operate like that before. It really was a watershed moment that uh, uh -huh. arguably the Supreme Court as an institution has never recovered from. Now, one could say, as I think you would say, or you have been saying in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in your, your, your steel manning of the conservative position on, um, on universities, is that, uh, well, you know, uh, the Supreme Court as it operated before is at this point out of reach for us. Like something was already breaking in the society in the eighties, um, that this kind of stuff was happening. This kind of polarized, uh, witch hunting in public life was happening. Um, and you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to like think back to the kind of politics we might've had of kind of, elite comedy, which comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy, comedy that allowed uh, the kind of compromise, political compromise of staffing elite institutions uh -huh. with people that subscribe to elite liberal values of impartiality and, you know, sort of power sharing, if you will. Um, and then that's gone now. And so now we fight uh -huh. the fights we fight over Supreme Court nominations. Um, and so one might say, uh, well, that's what the university is. It's also, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's, as you were saying, in the last 20 years, it's become unrecognizable as it once was. Um, and all of the hypocrisies, the elite hypocrisies that allowed the, the continuance of, um, you know, that kind of liberal facade of, uh, you know, impartiality and uh, that kind of comedy that allowed the appointment of the kind of people that conservatives are still pining for to run these institutions, well, that's gone now, so now we have to fight as we're fighting right now. Um, but, I mean, would you agree that, that like, both the Supreme Court is a more fucked up institution right now as a result of what happened there, and that basically we're about to take a step towards the destruction of a certain kind of university? I mean, I, I take your, your positive view, your, your, 
your optimistic view that, you know, hardball politics uh, could lead to, um, you know, a new hypocrisy about values and a new hypocritical uh, reassumption of values that we can all coalesce on. But it's just, I'm more struck by that we're maybe at an inflection point where yet another yeah. core set of institutions of an American life are about to get shit canned. Um, and and really just to degraded. add to that, like Harvard does suck on free speech, as you noted, Aaron, but Harvard is still today Harvard. It is still the world's most prestigious university. Like, do we really want to mess, do, fix something that... Sure. I'm messing up the expression, but like... Harvard's actually don't done. Fix what ain't, yeah, don't fix what ain't broke. Something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, Harvard actually is a pretty impressive institution that does produce amazing research and scientific feats of knowledge and whatever else. And people still really want to go there and so on and so forth. Like, do we really, like, the risk going forward is that we make Harvard into a political football every four to eight years. But anyway, yeah, Demir put a lot on the table. So yes, please go forth. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. Thank <laughs> you.